Welcome to Immigrantly, the podcast that explores the intersection of identity, culture, and belonging. I am your host, Sadia Khan. I hope this episode finds you well as we dive into the joys and challenges of the summer season ahead. Now, to be honest, the start of summer and warmer weather is a time of both excitement and, for me, a touch of trepidation. And I'll tell you why. I'm not the biggest fan of scorching temperatures. I grew up in Pakistan where the temperatures in summer can go as high as 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, I don't like it. But I'm learning to find ways to beat the heat. Eating watermelon is one such remedy. Before I talk about our guest today, which I am going to get to very soon, I want to share a podcast that captivated my attention. Now, those of you who know me know that I consume podcasts on a daily basis. And believe me when I say this, I devoured the first five episodes in just one day. I'm talking about the podcast called Scamanda. It's a true story that will leave you both fascinated and incensed. What the heck is Hodgkin's lymphoma? My goal with this blog is to not only keep friends and family in the loop, but serve as a resource to all those newly diagnosed. Doctors don't provide great detailed information, and the internet is not your friend when you're diagnosed with a disease. Scamanda basically tells the unsettling tale of a woman, Amanda C. Riley, who fabricated an illness exploiting the kindness and generosity of others for personal gain. And I kid you not, it is a profoundly unnerving listen. And as the episodes unfolded, a sense of betrayal and absolute anger washed over me. I was so Best. Honestly, guys, it's so disheartening to think that while countless, and I mean countless individuals, genuinely struggle with their health, scammers like Amanda Riley manipulate the system, depriving those needing financial and emotional support. And to be honest, it reminds us all of the dark side that lurks beneath seemingly innocent encounters and serves as a cautionary tale. So my dear listeners, as we embark on this episode of Immigrantly, I encourage you to take a pause and reflect on the power of trust, empathy and responsibility towards one another. And I really hope we can build a world where compassion prevails over deceit and genuine support reaches those who deserve it. Talking about genuine people, stories and ideas, my today's guest is a trailblazer of sorts in creating authentic stories through comedy. Anna Hosnier is a writer, producer and podcaster. More specifically, she is a comedy producer at iHeartRadio of several podcasts like Couples Therapy, The Daily Zeitgeist, Creature Feature and so many more. She's also the co-host of the podcast Ethnically Ambiguous, where she talks about what it is like being a child of immigrants, coping mechanisms she used in her past that resulted in turning points in her life, and other random yet incredibly interesting topics like going to magic Mike life. 
In this episode, we talk about her personal obsession with reality TV, what got her into comedy, life as a child of Iranian immigrants, and some of her inspirations that she looked up to. So let's get started. Good. How are you? I'm good. How's the weather in LA? Um, we're in some sort of June gloom right now. It's nice, but it's overcast. But we do get a sunny day here and there. Interesting, because we have an overcast as well. The thunder, in fact, is roaring. Really? I hope we don't get that noise in our episode. But yeah, it's crazy. Last week, there was smog and haze. And this right. week, we get thunder. Yeah. New York was really going through it last week with those fires. It was. And it's interesting because that particular day I was in the city yeah. to be on some other podcast. Mm -hmm. It was almost dystopian. I've never seen New York like that. Yeah. The skies looked orange. There was smog and haze. And then I see people puffing on cigarettes in a very nonchalant way. Yeah. It really reminded me of Lahore my hometown where people really don't care. They'll smoke while they see smog and haze. Yeah, I would not have gone outside. But you know what? Some people, they'll risk it all. So I wasn't sure how bad it was until I was in the city and I was wearing masks, which obviously I had to. I couldn't go without the mask. But once I was there, I realized how scary it was. Oh, yeah. So tell me, Anna, you've done a lot of comedy. So you've done comedy shows. Now you are producing a lot of comedy podcasts. The way I see it, you're basically telling authentic stories through humor. I try to, at least. Why humor? I've always really just liked to laugh. I think also, I wouldn't say my upbringing was very tough. Like I, I was definitely raised in privilege, but I had tough, strict parents. Uh, and there was sort of a lot of generational trauma just from their backgrounds. And a lot of my joy came from laughing and being able to laugh. And my parents are actually very funny people. Hmm. My dad's a very goofy guy. And my mom, she has very, very dry humor. She's very sarcastic. <laughs> so I've always just really enjoyed laughing. Hmm. And I think comedy is so fun and it's so freeing to like try and find different ways to be funny or to have fun. Yeah, she's always been drawn to it. But how do you strike that balance between being comedic and not discounting the stories that you're telling? I think it's all about being authentically like yourself, you know, unless I'm like writing something for someone to be a certain character, like a lot of our humor just comes like on Ethnically Ambiguous. It's just us being ourselves and finding humor in sort of certain behavior or just what is happening in the world. Because sometimes you go like, I just can't help but laugh at how ridiculous everything is. Or even just like how we treat certain parts of the world. You're like, it's almost comical how we 
at times in this country, like never learn. You know, (laughs) we just refuse to take all the hints around us of how we could improve in a certain way or how to go about treating certain countries in the news. Like after a while, you're like, you just kind of have to laugh because if I don't laugh, I'll cry. (laughs) Why do you think people refuse to do that in America? Why are they not taking those hints? I think as a country, we really struggle to change. Like, I think, you know, we have this progressive side of the country that really is sort of taking in what's happening around the world. People are becoming a little bit more empathetic. People are listening. We're starting to care more. But then, like, you see this whole progressive side and then you see, like, a whole other side that's like, no, I don't want to change. I like how my country was. The status quo is important. Mm. I can't understand that side in the same way that they can't understand our side, you know? And I think that's the biggest struggle in this country is, like, we are such individualists that we just refuse to see the other person's side. Like, I refuse to understand why someone wouldn't want to, you know, like, I'm like, why wouldn't you want to change? Like, why wouldn't you want to change for the better with the, like, climate of the country? Like, why don't you want to help? Why don't you want to acknowledge certain things that are happening? And then the other side's like, well, why don't you want to see my way, which is, you know, in my opinion, wrong. So there you go. (laughs) I don't know. I think we're all so stubborn in our way of doing things. And I guess that's the American way is to be stubborn, really. That is the American way. But I also think the other side is mostly comfortable in the status quo, right? Yeah. They have the privileges that marginalized communities don't have. So there isn't much at stake for them through change. How would that change manifest for them, right? Yeah. So it's an intrinsically human and selfish response. But I still want to connect with that side. Yeah. Because as you said, we are in a way living in our silos and our bubbles. How do we connect? Through humor, maybe? Humor does tend to transcend. You know, we can all be like, we all really like this TV show or we all really like this movie because it's so funny, even though we don't really see eye to eye on other aspects of our lives. You're right. Do you have any comedic inspirations, something that really influenced you when you were producing comedy shows and now that you're producing podcasts? My, a lot of my sort of comedy inspiration comes from like stuff that my parents showed me. Like growing up, my dad really loved Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Like my dad really enjoyed these comedians and would show me a lot of their work. It almost is like I've always, always been very inspired by sort of like older man humor, if it makes sense. Like I've always found that very interesting of how these older men were able to project their comedy onto younger generations. Like I found Gene Wilder is always such like his comedy is so goofy. There's these movies that he's done that are just so odd that you're like, it's funny. Like they're very interesting style of humor that you maybe you wouldn't see from like a Bill Cosby type, which his humor was all about like his family and being a father. But then, you know, you go and you see like Gene Wilder is doing bits about like, you want to see the fastest draw in the world and he's just not even moving his hand. And he's like, you want to see it again? And you're like, he didn't even move his hand. That's that's the whole joke is he's not even he's not doing anything. You know, he just found a very interesting way to to bring you into this like very silly humor. And I think a lot of my humor is, is inspired by that. I sort of like very odd, silly comedy. Older men comedy. Yeah, I don't know. It's almost like dad, dad jokes, jokes in a way, but not because they were, you know, they were also like all beyond, you know, like Gene Wilder was ahead of his time. Alan Alda was a very interesting 
comedian. I watched a lot of MASH growing up because that's just what my dad liked. You're absolutely right. Whatever our parents watch, we tend to have some kind of, I don't know, endearment towards that. My dad used to watch a lot of Western movies and I don't know why. And most of them were very problematic if I were to go (laughs) back and watch them today. Yeah. And yet Western movies invoke certain emotions in me because of my dad. But Anna, you also like reality TV. What got you into reality TV? Is there any specific show nowadays that you're binging? Oh, I watch so much reality TV. I watch almost all the Housewives, basically anything that goes on Bravo. A lot of the Netflix ones as well, like Love is Blind and Ultimatum. You know, I think reality TV is also very funny. It is funny. I think it's so goofy. Like they really like the editors do strong work in portraying people and they create very silly situations. And I also think humans are naturally just very funny when they go about their day. You know, like people do really silly stuff and I I can really find humor in a lot of stuff, just like conversations people are having or just the way people are acting and just people's facial expressions when they're reacting to people. Like I love all that. Like reality TV is incredible because you're having these people who are potentially just sort of open to being authentically themselves, even if it makes them look like really sort of unhinged in a way, like you're really wacko, you know, and you're like, wow, you're so confident in this sort of behavior that I can't help but respect you (laughs) because (laughs) I could never do that. Like I would never want to show myself that openly on a reality television show because people really go for it. They'll show their true emotions. They'll be like, you know what? I've had enough and I'm going to like start yelling at you. And you're like, whoa, really? Like that's the move. And that's, I find very interesting. I'm I'm very entertained by that because I'm like, good for you. Like you're just being yourself. And you're letting us watch it. (laughs) But how much do you think it's scripted, though? I wouldn't say it's scripted, but I would say it's very like storyline based. So I don't know how scripted it was in the early days. I think it's become more scripted because it's become more popular. Hmm. So like the more we want to watch a certain person, they go like, okay, well, you know, I'm going on my show. I need a storyline. How am I going to portray myself to the audience so they find me interesting and fun? So like, I think people will be like, well, my storyline this year is that I am trying to adopt my stepson or something. Or, you know, that's just one example. But like, or they'll be like, I'm finding out my husband had an affair or something. Like, even if they potentially know something, they might sort of plan around to try and find something out again on camera. So I think like, I wouldn't say it's like fully scripted, but it's definitely, I think, altered to bring maybe something that happened off camera on camera. And if you had the resources and opportunity to create a reality TV show, what would that show look like? Is there a particular theme that you would want to explore through that show or something that you've thought about or even part of your identity and your living or your lived experience that you may want to explore through that? One of my early jobs was actually in reality television development when I moved to L.A. Genuinely, like I felt like everything I was pitching had already been done. (laughs) You know, it's funny. After I left reality TV development, I said I would never like work in it again. I would just enjoy it because I did find working in it somewhat a little 
darker than I would have preferred. It wasn't that great of an experience. And I felt it to be sort of gross behind the scenes, which is, you know, my own sort of qualm of being like, it's so gross, but I love to watch it. That's exactly what reality TV is. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know what I would do myself. I think I really pushed that away from me. I can't think too much about it because I'm like, it's too dark behind the scenes. I don't want to be involved. You know, the one that I'm really enjoying is Indian matchmaking. It's problematic in some ways, but I'm so glad that it has in a way mainstreamed arranged marriage or the concept of arranged marriage, which was considered so alien in American psyche, right? Yeah. And I grew up with that concept. So I am glad that it exists and it's been mainstreamed and people are enjoying it. It's pretty fun. And I'm a fan of Siva Auntie. So if she's listening, I really want to interview her. My favorite thing about her is how she's so unimpressed when anyone has like standards. <laughs> They're like, this is what I'm looking for. She's like, you can't have that all. 50%. That's all I can give you. <laughs> and the funny thing is you're absolutely right. She has statistics to back it up. And I don't know where she gets those statistics from. Subsidy is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 60, 70%. Yes. Mm -hmm. You see, then it's fine. 60 to 70% is giving up quite a bit. That's the absolute best That's she can do for you. absolute best. <laughs> I know. So at least for all of us, we've just done 70%. Yeah. Those of us who are in relationships, 70% it is. Yeah. It's really funny. And then they have Jewish matchmaking, which was so oh, yeah, interesting. I, I watched that too. Oh, you did? So Indian matchmaking was more like, you know, South Asian stories. I could relate to it. Jewish matchmaking was more of a learning experience. So I learned so much about Jewish community through that show. It is incredible. Yeah. I'm really impressed with the makers and what they're doing with these shows. Yeah, that one's on my list. I need to watch. I just finished season three of Indian Matchmaking. So I need to. Oh. <laughs> I got to start watching Jewish Matchmaking. Yeah, I watch all of them. I <laughs> Anything drops, I'm like, add to list. You know, the interesting thing is I used to watch all the housewives of this and that. And then I realized I was internalizing a lot of behavior. Mm -hmm. And every time I would watch these shows, I would become angry and bitchy. And I was like, I don't oh, like myself when I watch this because then I tend to behave a certain way. So I cannot watch those shows, but I'm fine with Love is Blind and matchmaking and all of that stuff. Yeah. And I was listening to a podcast interview of yours and you talk about your upbringing, how your childhood was not normal in a way because of the food that you ate and the culture that you had within the confines of your home. And it got me thinking the term normal, it just did not sit well with me. And I know a lot of us use that, right? Especially children of immigrants say that their childhood was not normal. Mm -hmm. But to me, the term has such negative connotation, right? Mm -hmm. Because what you're saying is what's not normal is probably not good because a lot of times people will conflate not normal with not good. But what you were experiencing at home is your parents normal. Mm -hmm. It's Iranian culture's normal. So do you think that word does injustice to the idea of saying that your experience was uncommon or it was unique rather than normal? Yeah, normal is what is like projected on me. 
by like the outside world. And as a child, I'd be like, oh, I don't fit in. My family's not normal, which is just like a projection of what I was getting off society because I thought I had to fit in. There is no normal. Right. You know, and I think that was just my own childhood mind being like, how can I fit in? And it's like, well, I actually don't know what's going on in people's homes. Like, I don't know what they're experiencing either. And yeah, I think it was just kind of a an issue within myself. And I do feel like we use normal as like a way to be like, oh, that's sort of how it's supposed to be. I feel like language has also progressed in such a way because someone could be gay, straight or trans. You know, I feel like in the day we'd be like, oh, they're not trans. They're like, you know, a normal person or something like that. And I feel like we would use these this language that was like it would actually set us back. It's like, oh, you're saying that trans is not normal. And that's not how we should be talking about, you know, a person who's trans because they are normal. They're a person, you know, they just have chosen to live on a side of the life that they feel more comfortable and we shouldn't just say they're normal so we should you know have more language that reflects that like saying cis you know this person is cis they're not normal we're all normal we're all humans existing you know so I do find that we do throw around the word normal and we are sort of progressing past it and I do want to progress past it myself because now I don't really feel like I wasn't normal growing up you know like that wasn't really the case we were all normal I was just feeling I didn't fit in because I was the only Iranian. You talk a lot about this on your podcast, Ethnically Ambiguous, right? And you mentioned in an interview that you want through this podcast to inform people about what is going on in the Middle East and normalizing Middle Eastern culture and Islam is a big part of the show. Why is that goal so important to you? In my case, like after the Iranian revolution, things were kind of terrible for Iranians. Like people had such an interesting view about Iranians that wasn't positive. And then you have like 9-11, like you have these sort of moments in history that basically change the perspective of how they view the Middle East. Like all of a sudden the Middle East was about terrorism or, you know, movies were about how we would be portrayed as terrorists if you needed an enemy. You know, there was an era where it was like Russians, it was like the Cold War, and then it shifted. And now it's like Middle Easterners are the enemy. They're terrorists. Who knows what's going on over there? Muslims are the boogeymen, right? Right. And I grew up with that and it was the status quo. And I was always like, well, I feel like I'm always trying to explain to people tell people like, well, it's not really like that. Like I've been to the Middle East, like it's not war torn. Like, you know, (laughs) there are certain areas, but a lot of those areas are war torn because of America, you know, like we're feeding weapons into that region, you know, we're going in there and being like, we'll save you. And it's like, the reality is we're just causing more problems and, you know, disabling further what's going on. And it's all just one like very horrible cycle that we refuse to exit. And after a while, I realized like, oh, well, I could have a platform, you know, like I have access right now because I'm working in podcasting. We should just make the podcast and try and do it. And I think the big push was when Trump took office. Hmm. So this was early 2017. I was in Iran when he did his whole Muslim ban thing. So I'm sitting in a country that he's saying is like banned. Hmm. And I'm like, I'm an American citizen. Like, how dare you? And also I'm like reading the news. I'm watching all these different Middle Easterners, people from the Swana region be harassed trying to come into this country, being held by customs, saying like, you can't come in, you have a green card. It's like, well, guess what? In this country, a green card means you're allowed to be here. Right. 
all of a sudden because you were in, I don't know, like Iraq, like you can't come into this country. Like, what are you talking about? This is horrible. It's like all of a sudden now we're once again being painted in this way. And at the time I was like, 2017, how are we still acting like this? It's 2017. Um, You know, obviously four more years to come, we'd be like, okay, this is the country we're living in. It's very divided. It's gotten a lot worse, though. Yeah. You see a lot more divide. You see a lot more bigoted rhetoric. Yeah. Because it's been normalized ever since Trump took office, right? Yeah. People thought it would just go away once he leaves. It hasn't. It has stayed. It opened the door for us to be like, oh, this is very real. This is how people feel in this country. We were so naive back in 2017. We had no idea. I was able to come back into the country, obviously, but it it was a process and it was probably the most stressful time of my life. Like I remember I while I was there, I was so stressed out about the idea of reentering the country because I just did, we didn't know what it was going to be like. Yeah, I was so stressed out about everything going on that I didn't even get my period for a month. Like mm. I my body was shutting down like I was that internalized, like all the fear and what's going on and. Like, I don't even think I closed my eyes during the flight to L.A. Like, I was so nervous. And I remember when we landed, we all started to get up and they came in and said, everyone sit down. And I was on a Turkish Airlines flight. So I was like, they know we're coming from a certain region in the world that is not really, you know, looked upon well right now. And they came in and they just one by one picked up all the sort of like young men who would fall under the criteria of what a terrorist could be and pulled them off the plane. And I was like, oh, my God, like we are in this world again. Like this is happening again. They are pinpointing men that they think could be terrorists and pulling them off the plane before anyone else and taking them to an undisclosed location. I'm like listening to people's parents being like, where did you take my son? That's my son. Where did you take my son just now? And then being like, we have no information. And this was happening where? As soon as we landed into LAX. Oh, wow. It was either late February of 2017 or early March. I can't remember exactly when I came back. So this was basically happening in the U.S. This was in the U.S. Wow. So it's probably like a month after he did the Muslim ban, because I was in Iran that year for like a month and a half. And at that point, it had somewhat calmed down in the media, but it was definitely very much behind the scenes. They were definitely still targeting and profiling people. I remember being like sick, like you can't do or say anything. And to be clear, that profiling has continued for the last 23 years. It hasn't stopped Democrats or Republicans. They have not stopped profiling. No. During Trump's time, of course, it was more blatant and it was normalized and it was more in your face. But these things are happening and there are very few people who are talking about this stuff. Yeah. Anna, why did you go to Iran? It was the one year anniversary of my uncle's death. It's hard to travel to Iran because the time zone, it's like your whole day flips. So you have to stay for a while in order to like, it takes me about a week just to adjust my body. Same as going to Pakistan. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you have to go at least for a few weeks. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not worth the trip. Yeah. So do you have family back home? All my family's back home. Yeah. So how was the experience in 2016? You know, in 2016, it wasn't bad. 2017, there was definitely an energy where all my family was being like, welcome to be living under a regime. <laughs> and I'd be like, wait, what? Because they were like, Trump, good luck. And I was like, oh, no. But 
That's actually the last time I went back. The amount of stress I had there because he had called the Muslim ban is just so much going on. We all just sort of decided we wouldn't go back when Trump was still president because it was just so stressful. Mm. I was going to go back again February 2020. My mom ended up going and then COVID happened and my mom got stuck in Iran for a while because the flights all kept getting canceled. So she was there early February and then was stuck until about like late April. We couldn't get her out. So I haven't gone back. I do plan to go back because this is the longest I've waited to go back. I saw a pinned tweet a letter that you wrote to your grandmother. So your grandmother passed away last year. My condolences. She died in 2020. That's what I was going to go back for. Oh, she died in 2020. Yeah. She died early February 2020. Yeah. Why did you decide to write that letter and then share it? Um, I did it for uh, Women of the East, which is really lovely. It's it's run by a woman named Johan. And she asked me to contribute to like write a letter to someone in my family. And I think the death of my grandmother was very fresh. And I mean, I, I love my grandmother. This is my mother's mother. She's the only grandmother I knew because my dad's parents both died when he was young. So I never got to spend any time with them. But my grandmother was my mom's mom was just a very important figure in my life. Like she mostly lived in Iran, but she did come and stay with us for a few years when we were young and like watched us and was almost like, you know, like an unofficial nanny without being a nanny, you know, Hmm. like in, you know, our culture, like the grandparents very much like would raise us for the most part, you know, but it was tough because my parents had immigrated to a whole different country very far away. So my grandma, when she was able to finally get a visa, did come and stay with us for a while. And she just looks a lot like my mom. And there was something about that. And I look a lot like my mom. So the three of us just really looked alike our whole lives. There was just something about the three of us that I, I feel like we had a very special bond, me and my mom and my grandmother. Even if she hadn't seen me for a year, like she knew immediately what I needed or what I liked. That's what grandmothers are for. (laughs) Yeah, we were very connected in that way where it's like I might not see her for like a minute because of travel. But then when I would see her, we'd almost like immediately fall back into like our routines, you know, and I really loved her. She was just such a kind woman. She always cared about us. She always wanted to take care of us. And I think it was very hard for her to have us so far away as like the only grandkids she never really got to see. And yeah, and I was very devastated when she died because Mm. early 2020 I had spoken to her on the phone and I said this is the year I'm finally gonna come back and see you again and then she died like a month and a half later and I was devastated and I couldn't go to her funeral I was gonna meet my mom in Iran and then COVID happened Mm. I do hope to go back and at least visit her grave you know because she was a very very special woman and what is about Iranian identity or Iran that people in America don't understand? Is there anything particular that they get wrong always? People think the women are like incredibly oppressed because of what we see in the media. When I want to say Iranian women are some of the strongest women I've ever met. Sort of what we were just seeing with the protests and stuff like that was all run by young women who were fighting the regime, like they were the ones who were stepping up. Mm. And and I, I would say like almost every Iranian woman I know is so headstrong, so willing to fight for what they love and who they love and what they need. And I, I always 
found that incredible. Like the matriarch of our family is my uncle's wife. In my mind, she's like larger than life. You know, she always held the family together. I mean, she still holds the family together even after her husband's death. And just seeing how she is the matriarch, like she is the most important person in the family. She keeps everything together. And she was so strong when her husband died, when everything felt like it was falling apart around her. And she just wouldn't let you see her crumble like she was so like I'm here to take care of you even though her husband just died Hmm. but that's just how they are intrinsically they're just here to provide and to take care of you and to make you feel at home no matter what is it true that Iran has one of the highest literacy rates among women I believe so yeah (laughs) The, the women of Iran are very smart a lot of them are in university a lot of them are you know studying to become engineers and doctors and scientists and they have strong stem fields out there like they work really hard honestly Iranians are so smart it's very incredible (laughs) I don't really always include myself in that but I do think they are so smart and they work really really hard and I think even in like the early 70s before the Iranian revolution happened Iranian students were the majority of foreign students in the country Like they all left Iran to go study. And I think that's why we have such an incredible, vibrant Iranian population in the United States right now. And you know what? It's so wrong to devalue that agency Mm -hmm. when mainstream American media or even within political discourse, that agency is devalued or it is sidelined and people conflate governments with cultures and populations, right? It's really sad. And that happens a lot with Iran. I mean, to be honest, it happens with the entire Muslim world. Pick any Muslim country, whether Pakistan, Bangladesh, Iran, even Turkey, surprisingly. Yeah. But it happens a lot more with Iran. U.S.-Iran relationships are just fraught with mistrust and anger and anxiety. And that's one thing that has persisted throughout history. And it's not going away anywhere. And it must be so painful for Iranian diaspora and Iranian population, right? Yeah, especially with like sanctions on the country. Like a lot of these people in Iran have to survive without the influx of goods and supplies coming into this country. Like that country fought hard when COVID hit. We lost a lot of people in that country. A lot of our doctors died because they didn't have the amount, the right amount of PPE to protect themselves, but they still went to work every single day and tried to help. And, you know, we lost many lives and they fought hard to help their country, even when their government wasn't necessarily being the most helpful in that situation. So I think they're a strong group of people. Yeah. And these sanctions impact Iranian population, Iranian people a lot more than it really impacts the government. And that's the distinction that I hope people in the U.S. can make and understand. Yeah. Oh, my God. Can you hear the thunder roar? Yeah. It's crazy. It's so dark outside right now. Like it's 1.44 p.m., but it seems like it's night. It's crazy. I want to switch gears a bit and talk about the Daily Zeitgeist. So I was on that show and I kid you not, before going on that show, I was freaked out. Really? I didn't know what to talk about. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the first time I'm being interviewed by two dudes, if I can call them that. But they are the kindest and sweetest guys that I've met. I haven't spoken to them. It was so much fun. Now, when you were brought 
Jack O'Brien, who heads comedy at iHeartRadio, he wanted to diversify, right? That was the goal. Yes. How do we separate true representation and inclusion from tokenization, which happens so many times under the guise of diversity? Yeah, I mean, we're really seeing that now. A lot of companies are like, we hired a whole diversity team. And as soon as things got tough, they were the first people we laid off. And you're like, okay, that's not really how that works. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, Jack. So I met Jack probably like 2015-ish. He hired me. We worked together at Cracked. And then we left Cracked.com together to start the LA division. At the time, we were How Stuff Works still because iHeart came and acquired us later. But the one of the things that drew me in was Jack said, no more white guys, no more straight white men running podcasting. And I was like, yes, that's somewhere I would want to work. I don't want to do this like where I'm just like, you know, helping a bunch of straight white guys say the same stuff on me. (laughs) I can't do it. And also I just started Ethnically Ambiguous at that point. I was like, this is the route I want to work in. And, you know, Jack's always been really great about it because he listens It's hard to find a manager who listens and actually like takes your suggestions into consideration because it was just the two of us to begin with. And he said, let's go find me a co-host for Daily Zeitgeist. We were developing Daily Zeitgeist at that time. You know, we didn't know what it was called. We had all these really silly names of what we were going to call it. But he kept being like, I want it to be a show about the Zeitgeist. And I was like, just call it the Daily Zeitgeist. You keep saying the word Zeitgeist. It feels like that's what it is. So yeah, we were trying to like really figure out what does the LA division look like? Since we were mostly working in comedy because that's sort of what we enjoyed. And then we just went out and we were just like looking for people. We met Miles because Miles, his current wife worked at Cracked at the time. And so we found Miles. We talked to a bunch of other people and we kind of just started to bring in different people of color that we just enjoyed. And it was just me going out and being like, I really like working with this person. I think they're great. Let's bring them in. Jack would be like, yes, great. Sounds good. Like, and it's not like a diversity initiative or anything like that. It was just like a man who was just like in charge, but listening and allowing us to go out and bring in people from marginalized communities that we thought mattered. And it didn't matter like, oh, how big of a following do they have? Do they have this? Do they have that? Have they worked in this before? Because a lot of podcasting is gatekeeping, like being able to work in Pro Tools or, you know, Logic or Audition. It's not easy. These programs cost money. It's hard to train in them. And, you know, these are notoriously white spaces that are gatekept from people of color in marginalized communities. So that's kind of what we were doing, basically. Yeah. But it must be a lot of work, right? The Daily Zeitgeist. It's like every single day producing a show. Do you hope that at some point it would be weekly or bi-weekly or something? That's funny. The running joke is me saying, how about weekly Zeitgeist? (laughs) So why not weekly? So I think originally the daily didn't really exist yet. So we were like trying to be like, let's be one of the first daily podcasts. Let's see if we can do it. And I remember all the executives at How Stuff Works were like, can you do it? It just seems like you can't do it. We were like, we can do it. And we did do it for years now. We've been doing it since 2017. We were able to figure it out and make a daily podcast. And I think we ended up dropping it in 2018. But we spent like, you know, months troubleshooting, figuring it out, figuring out how to make this podcast work, how to like schedule, how to get people, how to get a writer in who's submitting stories for the guys. You know, like it took a while, but we really nailed down and got a very well-oiled machine. And people are hooked. Yes. I see so many people who are huge fans of the podcast. 
you know, we worked very hard on it. Luckily, I don't have to be there for the day to day anymore. I have a team that works on the show. Now I'm just the executive producer. I still book every single guest on the show, but I don't have to show up to the recordings every day anymore. I used to be at every single recording every single day. And now I'm I just oversee. I check in here and there. I'll pop in every once in a while. Like I'll pop in like two or three times a week just to make sure everything's going well. Do you have a particular guest in mind that you would really want to be on the show and you haven't been able to book them yet? I would love to get like Hassan Minaj on the show. Hmm. We've always been in talks about it. Hassan and I uh, lived in the same town growing up, so we've always known each other. But it's been a long discussion of, can we get you on the show? Can we get you on the show? And we haven't been able to. He would be great on the show. And Hari Kondabolu, but I recently did get Hari Kondabolu. He's coming on the show soon. Oh, I interviewed Hari too. He is a phenomenal comedian and conversationalist. I think he's going to be great when he comes on. I've been wanting to get him on for a while. And I would love to get Reza Aslan on. He's come and done Ethnically Ambiguous, but I never got him on Daily Zeitgeist. Ah. I should reach out and see if he would do Daily Zeitgeist. If you have his contact, if you could share it with me too. I will. It's so interesting because I have a wish list and I don't know how to go about it. I've tried to reach out to their PR people a couple of times, but you know how it goes, right? An independent podcaster reaching out, although we've been very lucky with some of our guests, but it's a constant struggle. It is. They are always gatekeepers, as you mentioned. Yeah. Anna, is being a comedian the prerequisite for your shows? I don't think, no, because, you know, like I don't consider myself a comedian. I think Shireen and I aren't comedians, but we have a good sense of humor. I think having a good sense of humor and also having a interesting perspective on the world is more interesting to me than just being like, oh, I'm a comedian. I work at being a comedian because I think, yeah, being a comedian is good. Then I know you're funny, but I also like people who are just interesting overall. They have their eye on sort of what's going on in the world. And then they also have sort of a funny perspective on what's going on in the world. And they do it effortlessly, right? Yes. It's like you don't have to be visibly comedian or act visibly comedian. Yeah. Yeah. Like me and Jack and Miles, like none of us are comedians, but I've never laughed harder than I've laughed with Miles and Jack. Our sense of humors and like our worldviews align in a way that we can find certain humor in things that just, you know, ruin us. And in the end, if you were to define America in a word or a sentence, phrase or a paragraph, you pick. I would say it's like a complicated wannabe utopia. (laughs) That's what I would call it. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Because it is this world that is so looked upon like America. That's where you go to make it. But it's this very complicated and it's almost like a wannabe of what we used to be. I'm probably going to borrow this from you, Anna, and use it in a lot of (laughs) Of places. Feel free. I love it. That's so true. Thank you so much for coming on Immigrant Liana. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be on Immigrant Lee. It really is. This was so much fun. Don't you think so? Anna is such a good sport and I had so many interesting moments, especially about the term normal and how we can replace it with something like uncommon or unique 
which is more palatable and more positive. What did you guys think of the episode? I know I always ask this at the end of each episode, but I'm really curious to know. Now, if you don't like writing emails, just send me a voice memo talking about how this episode resonated with you, what parts of the episode you really enjoyed and what parts we could work on a little more. This episode was produced by me, written by Rainier Harris and me. The editorial review was done by Shay Yu, our incredible editor, who, by the way, moved from New York to LA, is Hazik Hamid Farid. And the theme music for this episode and for Immigrantly is done by Simon Hutchinson. Please do not forget to follow us on Immigrantly's Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. You can find links to all these on our social media in show notes. And there is another link that you could easily click on, which is a link to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Until next time, take care.